Well, may the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. I invite you to either look in your worship order or open your Bible to the book of Acts chapter 18. And there you will find our sermon text for this evening. Acts 18, 1 through 11. We are continuing our journey through the book of Acts as we see the Holy Spirit working in the church to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. And we're learning about our history as God's people and also seeing that we are participating in this same mission of God in the world. And to that end, we want to enter back into this story to see where Uh, God is working at this time in Paul's missionary journey and also to learn from his experience, making connections to our own in our day and age in the 21st century. If you are willing and able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's holy word from the book of Acts 18, 1 through 11. The word of God reads. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many people In this city. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. And that is the word of the Lord. May God add his blessings to the reading, the preaching, and the hearing of his word. And all the church says, You may be seated. We are living in a remarkable time here in the 21st century. We're living in a remarkable time here in our day and age in the United States of America. We are witnessing an incredible movement of people from around the world. What many are referring to as this massive human migration. Around the world, people are moving from country to country for a variety of reasons. And it's Very likely that on any given day, as you go out into the public square, that you are going to see and hear people who are quite different from you. 
You are going to see and people uh, see and hear people who have a different color of skin, who have a different culture, a different religious background, a different language. You're going to encounter this if you pay attention at all. In the last year, I've been taking more and more note of this, and I can tell you that by God's grace, I've been in a variety of conversations with people in Mesquite and in other surrounding cities near Mesquite, people who have come from all over the world. I've helped people from Ethiopia work through rental contracts to get into apartments. That was not in my job description. And in seminary, no one ever said, this is what you're going to do as a pastor. I have talked to people who were injured on the side of the road who were from Africa. I have dealt with people from Latin America. I had coffee with two different pastors in our denomination this past week who have given themselves to work with immigrants and with refugees. We live in a remarkable time of human migration as people are being moved around the world by the sovereignty of God. One of the things I was hoping you would learn at the end of in the story of Acts 17 from last week is in God's providence. Paul says that God sets the boundaries of our existence. He sets the horizons of our experience in the world. God puts us in particular places and times because he wants us to seek him, to reach out for him and find him. That's true of your life and it's true of all of these people who are coming to America from different parts of the world, whether they are immigrants or refugees. We live in this remarkable time where the world is coming to us and we're not simply having to go out to the world. And this is in God's tender mercies towards those people, bringing them to places where they can hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what does that have to do with our story this evening? Well, you see the same thing happening in Paul's day in the Roman Empire. The Emperor Claudius got a bee in his bonnet over the Jews. And no one really understands all of the details of, as I understand, historians who've looked into this. But Claudius was agitated by the Jews for some reason. And he began to set limitations and restrictions on what he allowed them to do in the empire. And they... Resisted. They were a stiff-necked people at times and resisted the emperor's wishes and demands. Some people speculate that it had to do with conflicts between uh, the Jewish uh, religion and those of the Christian religion as they discussed and debated matters of their law and religion. And Claudius, the emperor, grew weary of this kind of thing. And, And so, as you saw in the story, as you saw in the text, Claudius required the Jews to leave Rome. He drove them away. And now you have this human migration of people moving throughout the, uh, throughout the Roman Empire, looking for communities, trying to connect. And lo and behold, you have in Corinth a place where people are regathering and connecting with one another. You have Saul, Paul from Tarsus, who connects with people from Italy, Jewish believers in Jesus Christ. They have shared faith. They have shared experience in the world. And so they form a community, a mission outpost in Corinth. And from there, Paul begins to testify and witness that Jesus is the Christ, or as Luke put it here, that the Christ is Jesus. And this agitates some of the Jewish folks who were in the synagogue. But this is Paul's 
This is Paul's mission program. He goes to the Jew first. He goes to the Gentile. He preaches that Jesus is the Christ, brings the gospel to bear, showing from their Old Testament scriptures that this has to be the case. And you see in the story that they reject this. They don't just reject it. They reject and revile this thing. They oppose Paul and his message. Nevertheless, as all of this movement is taking place here, Paul has landed in Corinth for this conversation for at the crossroads of all of this migration. The cross is planted firmly in Corinth and Paul is preaching the message of Jesus Christ. If you pay close attention to what uh, Luke tells us here, the message of Paul is that Jesus is the Christ. We could say it this way. He is preaching Jesus Christ. That is his message. He's not preaching himself. He's not preaching his denomination or his sect or his movement. He is preaching Jesus Christ. If you go to the letter of 1 Corinthians, where Paul writes back to these believers in Corinth, He tells them, reflecting perhaps on what was happening in Corinth, he's like, look, I know what's going on in Corinth. I know that the Jewish people want power. They demand power. They want they want signs. They want demonstrations of power. I know what they want. I know what they demand. I also know what the Greeks want there. The Greeks want wisdom. They want mystery knowledge. They want all of these things. And here's what we're going to do for those who want power and those who want wisdom. We are going to keep preaching Jesus Christ crucified. In other words, he doesn't allow human migration. He doesn't allow cultural preference. He doesn't allow the demands of the people around him to determine what he is going to preach. He preaches Jesus Christ crucified. And then he says it is power from God and wisdom from God to save everyone who believes. So whether you're a Jew, whether you're a Greek, if you believe this message about this God man, salvation is yours free and clear. That's what he was doing in Corinth. And it wasn't easy. There's resistance. There's opposition. There's conflict. So much so that at one point, Paul does uh, what appears to us to be a very strange thing. He, he shakes out his garments, right? He shakes out his garments. We don't use images like this, but Paul knew exactly what he was doing. This is the kind of thing that you could see Nehemiah do as Nehemiah was trying to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem against great opposition and threat. And he shook out his garments as a sign against his opponents, saying to them, may God shake you out as I'm shaking the dust out of the folds of my garments. Jesus Christ taught his disciples to do this very thing. He sent them on mission to the Jewish people. And he said to them, as you're going through the villages and the cities of Jerusalem, of Israel, and you're dealing with these people, you bring the peace of God. Peace be with you. And if your peace is received, proclaim the kingdom of God to them. But if your peace is thrown back in your teeth and rejected, shake the dust off of your feet and move on. And we see Paul doing this. We saw him do it a few weeks ago when he was in Pisidian Antioch, rejected at the synagogue. He shook the dust off of his feet as a warning against those people. This was the symbolism and the imagery of shaking the dust off. It wasn't Paul simply saying, I'm done with you. I'm taking my ball and I'm going home. 
This was Paul's way of saying this is a sign against you for rejecting the gospel. It is not a sign against the messenger. It has nothing to do with what the messenger thinks or feels about his opponents. It's a matter of him obeying Christ and giving this symbol, this sign, one last sign to his opponents. We're shaking the dust out of our garments as a sign against you. It's a sign of judgment. It's a malediction, a curse instead of a blessing. The gospel brings blessing, but when rejected, there's a curse. Your blood be on your own heads. Have it your way. You live with the consequences of rejecting and resisting the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is getting at. And he says he's innocent. And you know why he says he's innocent? He's innocent because he has fulfilled the mission for which Christ sent him to Corinth in the first place. Like a watchman, like a watchman, he has told the truth and nothing but the truth to that community of people. He has not withheld anything from them. He has laid it all out. Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the savior of the world. God in the flesh come to redeem his people, come to save you. Turn from your sins, put your trust in him and you shall be saved. And they reject this. So to us, it might seem that Paul is simply frustrated and upset and saying, fine, I'll go somewhere else and play. But that's not at all his point. He has gone to the Jew first because God said it would be so. And now he is turning his attention to the Gentiles. I love the the irony or the maybe irony is not the right word, but I love the imagery here that he leaves to go to the Gentiles. And you might be thinking, well, now he's going far away. And where does he go? Right next door. He's within earshot of the people who have reviled and rejected him. And he goes right next door to preach. And who is one of the first people to repent and believe the gospel in Corinth? Crispus. The ruler of the synagogue, the ruler of the synagogue, the very place where Paul was rejected and reviled. The ruler of that synagogue comes to faith in Jesus Christ and he joins with Titius Justice, a man who worshiped God, likely a Greek, a non-Jewish man. And now you have the formation of a new temple in Corinth. Jew and Gentile coming together in Jesus Christ. The wisdom and the power of God at work in this community. This is what we see unfolding here. Now there's something I want you to note as you look through this. I sent you a little note about this in our Facebook group. And I won't spend a lot of time on it here. But I want to plant this seed for you. Because these kinds of things are just so incredibly cool to remind us that the word of God is living and active. One of the things you see running through this, this narrative, through this story, is the Exodus motif. You see that running through the story. In other words, the story of the Exodus that you read about in the Old Testament kind of looms in the background of this story. Think about it. You've got You've got a ruler and a city driving people away. You've got people on the move going from one place to another. There are blessings and curses involved. You've got a people that are passing through the Red Sea of baptism, making their way out of one context into another. They are now 
formed into a new people and they dwell with God and walk with God in the world. They are a new assembly, a new community of people. And so what's happening here is this is you learn that the Exodus is not just a Jewish event. It's not just a Hebrew story, but this is a story that involves Jew and Greek. And if you go back and read the Old Testament narrative of the Exodus, you would find it was like that as well. The Hebrews went out and then there's this really strange word used. It talks about and the rabble that went with them. Rabble, not a word we use every day, but it's a word that is sort of a catch all for all of those non Hebrew people who saw an opportunity to escape Egypt and sort of piggybacked with that community. And they became a part of the people of God on Exodus from Egypt across the Red Sea into the wasteland with the hope of reaching the promised land. Paul uses this imagery throughout his correspondence with the Christians at Corinth. And I want to show you this in a couple of places. If you look carefully at the, uh, the language that's used here, notice that uh, Luke tells us that Paul went to the house of a man named Titius Justus. Uh, Crispus believed in the Lord together with his entire household. Many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. When trouble breaks out in the church at Corinth, and it does break out for a variety of reasons. It breaks out because you've got a mix of people from different classes and different cultures and different kinds of uh, circumstances. Trouble breaks out and Paul has to come back in and remind the church of the centrality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He has to go to them and deal with the fact that there are divisions in the church at Corinth over the issue of baptism. The sign and seal of our union with Christ had become a source of division in Corinth. It reminds you of American evangelicalism, doesn't it? It reminds you of what's happened in the Christian world from uh, the time of the Reformation going forward. What should be the sign and seal of our union and our unity with Christ has become a source of division. So when Paul writes this church in 1 Corinthians 1, he has to get on to them because they're very concerned about who baptized them. And they're trying to form little micro denominations within their church over who baptized them. Well, Paul baptized me. Well, Peter baptized me. Well, Apollos baptized me. And then you had the hyper spiritual people, the really theologically astute ones who said, well, I'm of Christ, right? Paul has to address the fact that the sign and seal of our union with Christ was flipped on its head and turned into a source of division among the people of God. God save us, but this is what has happened in American evangelicalism. And we've all lived it. We all experience it. We all feel it in our bones. Paul will write to this church and say to them, listen to this. First Corinthians one. I thank God that I baptized none of you. And of course, we just read that he baptized some. And so I bet when they first heard this, some of those guys were like, oh, Paul. (laughs) 
And then he says, except Crispus and Gaius. Gaius wasn't mentioned in the book of Acts, was he? Crispus was. I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. And then he says parenthetically in verse 16, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. Unlike some preachers I've known through the year, Paul did not keep notches in his Bible over who he baptized and how many he baptized in a running record of all of that kind of thing. Why? Because he says this, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is a jarring statement. What Paul means is that he was not sent to baptize Period. End of story. He meant he was sent to preach the gospel of Christ and all that comes with it. And we know that part of what comes with it is baptizing. This was the Great Commission, was it not? Go make disciples of all the nations doing what? Baptizing them in the triune name of God of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to do what? Observe or obey everything the Lord Jesus Christ commanded. And so Paul is on that mission. He's on that mission that Christ sent him on, but he's not on his own personal mission to find out how many people he can baptize wherever he goes. Something that's clear here, and this should encourage the families of this congregation, is you see that God relates to his people family by family, household by household. This is very important for us to be reminded of and for us to see. You have come to the Lord Jesus Christ. You have put your faith in him. You have been baptized into him. You have brought your children to receive baptism as well. And in obedience to Jesus, you are teaching your children to obey the Lord Jesus Christ in all things. This is how disciples are made. And Paul is very careful in 1 Corinthians. If you jump to 1 Corinthians 10, I want you to see this as well. Paul goes full circle back to the Exodus story. Also mentions baptism in relation to the church at Corinth to talk about why our divisions over this thing that should be a sign and seal of our union is completely unnecessary. He says this in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1. I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea and they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. The remarkable thing about this passage is Paul is a Jewish man writing to a mixed community of Jews and Gentiles. And he says, our fathers Our fathers, not just those of us who are Jewish, but those of us who are Jewish and those of us who are Greek. Our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Our fathers, their story is our story. Our story is tied to their story. Their exodus journey is 
the backdrop of our Exodus journey. And what I want you to see here, especially as we talk about households, is the importance of tying your story to the story of God's people in the Old Testament. Our fathers were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. When you read that story in the Old Testament, what do you see? You see men, women, and children, entire families moving from Egypt, crossing the Red Sea, coming out on the other side into a new world, into a new life, a new experience with God in the world. You see them on an Exodus journey from slavery towards freedom. You see all of that. And I like to point this out for all of you and for our friends who are with us It's a bit of humor, and please take it as such, but there's a little truth built into this humor. You know that when you see that story, there were no alternative routes. There were no alternate routes or detours for women and children. They all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses, men, women, and children. Now, I've got to tell you, for many years, I racked my brain over this because it seemed that they were dry cleaned, right? Because they crossed over on dry ground and the, the walls of water were on each side and the water, uh, the cloud was above them. And it seemed that they were dry clean. Like how in the world did they make it through the Red Sea and how could that be considered a baptism? And I heard all kinds of uh, theological and hermeneutical, uh, exegetical gymnastics at work. Like, well, the water was on each side and clouds are made of water. And so it looked like they were all immersed in the water, sort of symbolically immersed in the water. I wonder if you heard the scripture reading before the sermon from Psalm 77. Did you catch that? This was eye-opening to me a couple of years ago, and it clarified many things for me. What happened to Israel when they crossed through the Red Sea? Water poured down from above on them. Why did Paul call that a baptism? Because God was baptizing his people. He was baptizing his people. He was pouring water from above on his people as they went through the Red Sea. When you read 1 Corinthians 10, read it again. All were under the cloud, all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And it sounds so good, doesn't it? It sounds so refreshing. And everyone in Corinth could say, yes, this was our experience. It was God who did this work. It wasn't Apollos. It wasn't Peter. It wasn't Paul. It was God who did this work. And to keep them from presuming on God's grace and to keep them from exaggerating what happened to them in baptism, I want you to see what Paul says in verse 5 of 1 Corinthians 10. There's a terrifying word mentioned there. The word nevertheless. Nevertheless, what? With most of them, God was not pleased. Why? They were overthrown in the wilderness. We can read in places like Hebrews 4 and other texts, even in this context, and see God was not pleased because instead of walking with Christ, walking with God in the wilderness and newness of life, They continued to live as if they were Egyptians. 
They were Egyptians at heart. And they demonstrated that by their sexual immorality and by their grumbling and complaining and by their idolizing of different things in the, in the wilderness. God was not pleased with most of them because there was a generation of people that did not walk by faith in the true and living God. What happened to that second generation of all those children who were baptized into Moses? All those children whose parents say, we can't continue through the wilderness because it's risky and dangerous for our children. Men were trying to hide behind their wives and children. Go back and read those stories again. You'll see that. But I ask you this question. Who inherited the promised land? Not the first generation of all the adults who should have known better. But it was that next generation of children who grew up in the wilderness in hard times. They are the ones who came to faith in God and eventually conquered the land according to God's promises. Now, I say this to you so that we do not presume on God's grace and and imagine that somehow the baptism of ourselves and of our children is the end of the story. It's not the end of the story. It's only one stage in the Exodus journey. But what we need to remember is that it's not about which denomination baptized us. It's not about which group we came from and where the water came from and which minister performed baptism upon us. Moving forward in 1 Corinthians, Paul says to this church in Corinth, As the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of the one spirit. Now, I know we've moved away from the book of Acts. Let's go back over there now as we come to the end of our Message this evening. We've moved away from Max, but I wanted you to see how all of these beautiful things that happened on Paul's missionary journey as he preached the gospel and people came to faith and received baptism and began walking with Christ and bringing their kids up in the Lord. It got sideways in a hurry, got sideways in a hurry as people lost sight of the cross of Jesus Christ. As they lost sight of the wisdom and the power of God. And Paul will have to write a letter to them later to remind them of the centrality of the cross of Jesus Christ. And how the cross will put all things to the test. Including the members of the church at Corinth. So Paul's faced some hard times here. And God reaffirms the mission that he sent him on. Notice in 1 Corinthians I'm sorry, and uh, notice in the book of Acts 18, verses 9 to 11. Look at these words of reassurance and encouragement for Paul. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. The Lord knows those who are his. Paul is on mission in Corinth and he must preach the gospel without showing partiality or favoritism. 
The Lord has many people in this city who are his. What does Paul need to do? He needs to go hunting for them, seeking for them, reaching out for them, and perhaps even finding them. The Lord knows those who are his, and he will work by means of Paul's gospel preaching in Corinth to bring those people out on Exodus journey along with Paul and the church at Corinth. The Lord knows those who are his and his spirit is working in the city of Corinth, just as the spirit works in this city and in surrounding towns and throughout our state and nation throughout the world. The spirit of God is working by means of gospel preaching and gospel ministry to gather the people of God into the church of Jesus Christ. Notice what verse 11 says. Paul stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Paul spent more time in Corinth than he spent in just about any other place. It appears that he spent a little bit more time in Ephesus. But between these two places, he spent most of his time there. Other places, in and out, in and out. But the Lord camped him out here. Because there were many people in the city that the Lord wanted him to find. They wanted the church to love and serve. They wanted the church to gather into the body of Jesus Christ. I hope you're encouraged by that. If you think back to where you were five years ago, ten years ago, fifteen years ago, whatever it happens to be. Like me, none of you would have ever thought, this is where we're going to be in X number of years. And yet... Here, God in his grace has been working among us and through us, not only to bring the gospel of grace to our community here in this church, but to people outside this church in our community uh, around us. It's an amazing thing to be a part of the mission of God in the world. And what we're seeing as, is that as the gospel goes out into the world, to the ends of the earth, yes, it will be met with resistance. Yes, there are some who will revile it and consider it to be foolishness and weakness. But even the weakness and foolishness of God is stronger than man's wisdom and power. And so I encourage you and your families to cling to Christ. Hold on to the cross, center your life there to be shaped by the cross of Jesus Christ for the glory of God and for the good of the world. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.